We've been in this series, Holy Spirit Come, now for a number of weeks, and today is going to be our last installment for this series. I hope that it's been a blessing to you. I know it's been a huge blessing to me, even as I've been studying, as I've been growing in my own understanding of the Spirit, and just uh, letting Him uh, do His work in a fresh way in my heart. I hope you've been experiencing the same thing. And uh, we're going to look today at something maybe a little bit different, a little bit kind of different angle um, on things as we look at Scripture, and that's going to be looking at the pictures of the Holy Spirit. And what we can learn from these representations of him and what that means for our lives and, um, and how we can walk with him in that. And so when I was thinking about that, it brought back to the, my mind the phrase that a picture is worth a thousand words. We've all heard that, right? And uh, I think most of us would probably, would probably agree with that. There's, there's something powerful about images and pictures that they can convey so much in such a simple um, image. Um, oftentimes bringing kind of abstract ideas or words into very concrete, shared experiences where we can all see and relate to the same thing. And I believe that, I believe God designed our brains to work that way. You know, he, he's the one who's designed us, he's put us together, and in his creation, I believe he created the human brain to understand complex truths through simple images, and then he takes that uh, development in us and he leverages that all throughout Scripture to show us some very complex truths about himself and about his word and about the world and how it works and helps us to understand things that maybe we wouldn't be able to understand otherwise. And so today I want to press into that with these images. I have five images here on the screen for you. We've got the wind, we've got the dove, we've got the fire, the oil, and the water. And these are all, um, all have one thing in common. Um, not only are they all in scripture, but they all are images used to describe the person of the Holy Spirit. And each one of these images tells us a different aspect of who he is and how that applies to our lives. And so I want us to look into that today because I believe that the more clearly I see the Spirit, the more closely I can walk with the Spirit. The more clearly I can see him and know him and understand him, the more I can walk with him in the work of the Lord um, and in his kingdom. And so we want to be doing that together today. So we're going to look at five different pictures. I'm going to start with number one is the wind. All right. As the wind, point number one, he breathes new life into me. As the wind, he breathes new life. So we're going to go to, to Acts chapter 2 for this, perhaps the most um, famous verse of the Holy Spirit when it comes to wind. It says in chapter 2, verse 2, that, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to first get this, that, that the Greek word for wind and also the Hebrew word for wind actually have multiple meanings. They can mean wind, they can also mean breath, and they can also mean spirit. And so, out of all the pictures, this one is kind of most synonymous with the idea of the Holy Spirit because it actually can mean spirit in and of itself, just the word. But here it is visualizing the Holy Spirit coming down as this wind that rushes into the room with the first disciples as they're waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. And it shows us that the Holy Spirit is now present. He's now moving and working. He's doing a new thing in the life of Jesus' disciples and in the life of the church. But to fully understand what's going on, we have to go back to the original reference of the Holy Spirit as wind, which takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Look at this. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 
it says, was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, what, what hovers over water? Wind does. The air, right? So the Holy Spirit is here, present at creation, active in the creation process with God the Father and God the Son in the form of wind. And he's bringing life, new life, through the act of creation. So we have that picture, and then we go forward in the Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 37. A pretty famous story here in Ezekiel, if you know any of the Old Testament stories. This was a crazy one. The, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel um, speaks in verse 7. It says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Same word. And he said to them, prophesy, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army. Again, if you know this story, it's kind of crazy. Ezekiel's out there in the middle of this field. There's all these dead bodies, actually just bones left of the dead bodies all over the place. And God uses him to prophesy and to raise them up into an army. And in the midst of that, he says, but they don't, they don't have any life. They don't have any breath. And so he calls the wind, the wind of God, the breath of God to come and to fill them and to bring them to life, new life. And this is a picture, the prophecy is a picture of the new life that God is going to bring and breathe into his followers and to make them part of his family. And so we see all that here in Ezekiel, and then we see it fulfilled in the New Testament with John chapter 3. Look at verse 6. It says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus here, he's trying to explain new life. He's trying to explain salvation. He says, but hey, don't marvel that I told you you got to be born again. Like, don't, don't doubt me. Don't, don't, uh, don't freak out Don't because you don't understand it. He says it's kind of like the wind. The wind blows wherever it wants, and you don't understand that. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. You, don't, you can't control it. You can't contain it. You can't even see it. And yet you know it's there. Because you hear its sound, he says. You see its effects because you experience the evidence of the wind. You don't understand it, but you still know that it's real. He says, so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. It's just like wind. The Spirit comes and it blows into our hearts. And it brings new life into us. The breath of God filling us with new life. You can't see it. You can't understand it. But it's real nonetheless. Because we experience it. We experience the evidence of the Holy Spirit filling us and changing us and bringing new life 
into these dead bodies. You see, the Holy Spirit doesn't come through understanding. He comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And as the wind, the Spirit blows new life into my heart when I believe in Jesus. So first we see the Holy Spirit coming in the form and the symbol of wind with new life. Second picture that we have of the Holy Spirit, though, is as the dove. As the dove, number two, he confirms my purity. As the dove, he confirms my purity. Let me show you this. Let's start back in the Old Testament again. Leviticus chapter 12, verse 6. It says, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So this is giving instructions here. God's giving instructions to his people about, hey, when you have been unclean, here's how you purify yourself and are able to come back into my presence. First, there had to be a physical purification. They had to wash their bodies. And then there had to be a spiritual purification where they would come to the priest and he would, he would purify them and remove their sin, if you will, forgive their sin through uh, God. But here he says you need to bring a dove as your sin sacrifice. And the reason they oftentimes would choose a dove is because the dove in that time represented purity because doves were known to constantly be cleaning themselves. They were, they were thought to be a very clean animal. And so they would bring the dove as a sign of purity that they were asking God to purify them from their sins. Now, just to be clear, the dove did not actually forgive their sin. Right? The dove does not have the ability to remove sin or forgive sin. It was a symbol of the forgiveness of the purity that they were going to receive from their sin as they put their faith in God and asked for forgiveness. And so the dove was that sacrifice, that symbol to confirm that, yes, God's grace had come to them and they had been purified through their act of repentance. So we have that picture of the dove in the Old Testament. And then we go to the New Testament in Matthew 3.16. Familiar story here. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And here, the, the, the importance of the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove was he was coming to confirm to all those who were watching that Jesus was indeed pure before God. That he was the sinless perfect, righteous Messiah that he claimed to be. And so the Spirit comes and he confirms this. We see it again, same thing in John 1.32. For John the Baptist, it says, he bore witness. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So not just confirming that he was pure in that moment because of his baptism, but that he remained walking in perfection, in sinless perfection and purity before the God all of his days. The Holy Spirit remained on him as a sign of his purity. We see this repeated in Scripture multiple times. I'll give you just a couple examples. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. No sin. He was pure. Another one is John 3, 1 John 3.5. 
says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He was pure. And that is why Jesus alone was uniquely positioned to be the only one who could save us from our sin and make us righteous and pure before God. Because friends, in our natural state as humans, we are not pure. We're not. We're sinful. We're broken. We rebel against God. We go our own way. We disobey his, his word. We rebel against his rule in our lives. And because of that, we deserve his wrath. We deserve punishment, death even. But God loves us so much, and his grace is so strong that he sent his son Jesus to come to earth and to live the perfect, sinless, pure life that we could not live. And he walked among us, perfectly righteous before God, and then he went to the cross and he died a sinner's death. He gave his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. He took our death and our punishment upon himself, and he stood in our place, and he died, and he went into the grave, and three days later he rose back to life, proving that he was God and offering all of us forgiveness, that we too can be clean, we can be purified from our sins if we will put our faith in Jesus and his sacrifice for us. Just like the dove, Jesus sacrificed so that we could be forgiven. If we'll believe. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. He says, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be purified. That we might receive as a gift the imputed righteousness of Christ. His righteousness put on us. And in the moment that we believe, in the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and he fills you as a dove to symbolize that purity that you have been given in Christ. And then he abides with us to remind us to walk in that purity as we have been redeemed in Jesus. As the dove, the Spirit confirms and calls me to walk in purity of Christ. Confirms and calls me to walk in the purity of Christ. So we have two pictures down. Third picture is fire. As the fire, he refines my heart. As the fire, he refines my heart. Now, again, for this one, we have to start in the Old Testament. So many of this stuff, God front-loaded in the Old Testament for us to give us these pictures to be ready for what he was going to do in the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we see all throughout the Old Testament that God was a refiner. Now, we don't really have refiners today. We have refineries, and they do all the work for us. But back then, a refiner would go, and he would sit, right, at a fire, and he would take precious metals like gold and silver, and he would put them on the fire, and he would heat them up with this really intense flame, and then all the impurities would rise to the top, and then they would swipe them off to purify and to to make the gold or the silver a more precious metal. And the Bible tells us that God does that with us. 
that he takes us and he puts us in the fire of life, in the suffering, in the trials, in the pain, in the struggle. And he uses those su- that suffering in our lives, the intense pain and fire of that, to refine our hearts and to remove the sin that is there, to, re- to, to refine us into his image. Let me give you some Old Testament examples of this as they pop up. Look at Job 23.10. It says, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, when he has refined me, is what it means there, I shall come out as gold. Now, if you know anything about the story of Job, Job had his fair share of troubles, right? Like, maybe more than anybody else in human history, Job knew what suffering was. And he says, he came to understand that God was using his suffering, using his trials, using his pain as a refining fire on his heart, to purify him and purify his faith. Another one is Proverbs 17.3. says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Just like you refine silver, you refine gold, the Lord refines our hearts as he tests us in the fire to expose and to remove our sin. Another one, Zechariah 13.9. says, I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Here through the prophet Zechariah, God is talking to Israel, the remnant, the left people who are left, who still have faith in him. He says, I'm going to take them, I'm going to put them in the fire, I'm going to refine them so that their faith, so that their worship becomes pure. And as God's refining their heart, he says, they will call out to me in repentance, to remove their sin. And he says, and they will say that the Lord is my God, that their worship will finally rise from pure hearts because of the refining fire of God. Or another one is Malachi 3.3. He says, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. This is actually a prophecy of Malachi talking about the coming Christ. That one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to refine us and he's going to remove our sin. And then it says, and then, right? Notice the cause and effect. And then they will bring offerings in righteousness. First he has to refine our hearts. First he has to purify us and remove our sin. And then we can come with full righteous worship before the Lord. So we see all these pictures of God refining us in the Old Testament, and then we see the fulfillment of that in the New Testament with the Holy Spirit. Look at Luke 3.16. John the Baptist talking again. He says, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire. Jesus baptizes us with the fire of the Holy Spirit, again, to re- convict us of our sin and to remove that from our hearts so that we can become more, we can grow more into the image of Christ. Another one is Acts 2, 1 through 4, similar passage from earlier. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. We already covered that part, right? The wind. But then notice, right, right with the wind, he says, and divided tongues as of fire 
appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here, this is happening at Pentecost, and just kind of re- refresh you on the story. Jesus had already left. He's already ascended back into heaven, and he told the disciples, hey, don't do anything. Right? Remember we talked about that? Do nothing until you get the Holy Spirit. And so they've been in the upper room waiting for 40 days. Praying, waiting, not knowing what's coming next. Fearful, worried, like what's God going to do? How's this going to work? And if you've ever experienced something like that, where you've been asking God to do something, or you've been waiting on the Lord to do something, and you're just waiting and you're waiting, and you don't know when it's coming, and you don't know what he's going to do, that's a heavy, heavy thing. That's a burden. That's a trial. That's suffering. The disciples here, they're, they're underneath this intense heat of this trial. Their, their Savior is gone. Their leader is gone, and they don't know what's going to happen next. They say something. He told them somebody's coming, but we haven't seen it yet. It's been 40 days. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came. It says he came like fire, and he burned up all of their doubt, and he burned up all of their fear, and he filled them with the fire of God, and their hearts burned up their selfish desires, and they go bursting out. These guys who have been scared in a room for 40 days burst out the doors with the power of the gospel, and thousands of people are saved. Because the Holy Spirit fire had filled them and refined them, and now they were ready to serve the Lord. So as the fire, the Spirit refines my heart and removes my sinful desires so I can glorify God. It's that ongoing work of the Spirit refining us, changing us, making us into the image of Christ so we can give Him more and more and more glory with our lives. He's the fire. Fourth picture, fourth picture of the Holy Spirit is oil. As the oil, he anoints me with his power. He anoints me with his power. So again, go to, start with the Old Testament. Look at Exodus chapter 29, verse 7. It says, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Now, that's a very short verse, and you've got to have some context, obviously, to understand that. This is from the instructions where God is first ordaining the priests of Israel to serve his people. All right? He's saying, hey, I want you to be the ones who lead them in worship, who, who tell them how to relate to me, who connect the people to me. And so to this end, he had to anoint them to symbolize his calling, his blessing, his favor on these priests. In consecrating them with oil, he's basically in giving them his power and his authority to lead the people in worship of God. A very sacred and holy act. And so first we see the anointing of the priest, and they're imbued with God's power to lead the people in worship. And then we see it again in 1 Samuel 16, 13. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So here, it's not a priest anymore. Now God is anointing David as the king of Israel. Right? And in his anointing with oil, the Holy Spirit comes and rushes upon him and 
fills him with the power that he needs to lead and to rule and to govern God's people. And David, because of this power, would go on to be the greatest king that Israel ever experienced. Because he was filled with the power of God through the Holy Spirit, symbolized by the anointing of oil. Here was Samuel. So take that, and then again, we go to the New Testament, and we see it transferred then to Christ himself. Take a look at this in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter here is talking, he says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. You see the language there? That he anointed him, like with oil, Holy Spirit, and power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So Peter's testifying here about Jesus, again, using the imagery of oil to show this granting of a power, this granting of authority to Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we see it first comes to Jesus, and then go to Mark chapter 6, verse 13, and it says this, And they, the disciples, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this is the part in the Gospels where Jesus is sending out his disciples, right? He's, he's shown them how to do ministry. He's like, all right, I want you to go do it for yourself now. I want you to go out in my name and heal people and spread the gospel and all these kind of things. So he sends them out. But as he sends them out to do ministry, he gives them the power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to him. And they go out and they start to heal people. They start to cast out demons. They're doing all these things. And in the healing, they use oil. They anoint them with oil as they're praying for their healing to symbolize that it's not their power that's healing them. It's the power of the Holy Spirit coming and doing the healing in those moments. So we see it from Jesus to the disciples, and then we go forward to James chapter 5, verse 14. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So these are instructions to the elders of the church. So think about this timeline. First, Jesus comes. He gets anointed with the Holy Spirit. He has the power to go out and do all these miraculous things. Then he gives that power to the disciples and the apostles for a season. And for uh, the early church years, they're able to do all these amazing, miraculous things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then they teach. They go plant a bunch of churches, raise up local elders. Like, all right, elders, here's how you handle this. When someone's sick... Bring them in, three things. Bring them in, pray over them, anoint them with oil, in the name of the Lord. So again here, the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit, which tells us that the power that happens here in any type of healing in the church, it's not from the elders. It's not from the pastor. There is not any human on this earth who has the power to do that. Any healing that happens comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we anoint with oil to show that, hey, it's not us. We're praying and we're asking God to do something miraculous here. It's going to be His power that's moving. And this oil represents the Holy Spirit and whatever He wants to do here. The power is not in the pastor or the elders. The power is not in the prayer. As much as we love to pray for you, guess what? Our prayers are not any more powerful than your prayers. We all pray to the same God. It's all the same power. The power's not in the oil. We didn't get some special oil from the olive groves of Jerusalem, right? It wasn't blessed by anybody. It's just, it's just canola, right? Like, it doesn't even matter. Like, it's, it's not any of that. 
It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the power in these situations. Look at 1 John 2, 20 and 27. It says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, that's God, and you all have knowledge. Verse 27, but the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. So interesting here, John says that you've received an anointing from God, and that anointing abides in you. What We've been studying this for a couple weeks now. What is it or who is it that abides in us? It's the Holy Spirit. So the anointing that John is talking about here is the Holy Spirit. And so the power of the Holy Spirit comes and anoints us and abides in us and lives in us, not just to do miraculous healings, which is great, but to teach us the Word of God. So that we might walk with him as followers of Christ. That as believers, we have the power of God living inside of us. And I think sometimes we, we fall asleep on that. Right? We take that for granted, or we don't think about it, or we just kind of dismiss it. We have the power of God through the Holy Spirit living inside of us because we have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that. We need to, we need to tap into that power. But here, let me say this at the same time. It's still not our power. It's His power in us, which means we don't get to control it. We don't get to command it. We don't get to be the ones who decide how the power works. We just get to abide in it. That's what John says, right? He says, abide in the anointing that you've been given. Surrender to it. Walk in it. Let Cooperate with it. Let the Holy Spirit's power be the one who's doing the work, and I'm just along for the ride. It's powerful, but it's not ours, it's His. So as the oil, the Spirit's power covers me, and enables me to walk with Christ. That's so important. Listen to that again. It covers me as I abide in it, and it enables me to walk with Christ. The power that I need to follow Jesus, it comes through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The oil is number four. Then lastly, number five, the last picture is as the water. As the water... He preserves my soul. Going back to Ezekiel again, verse, or chapter 36, verse 25. God is speaking here and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. I didn't even know that was a word. There it is. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. Now, this was really interesting to me. When I read this this week, I was thinking, God says that he's going to cleanse me from my sin with water. Now, I don't know about you, but I I tend to cleanse myself with water a couple times a week. Right? Like, shower. Right? Like, I do that. Never once has a shower helped me with my sin problem. Not one time. 
has my sin ever been washed away by the water coming through the faucet? Right? And yet God says that somehow he's going to use water here to cleanse us. And that cleansing is necessary. God has to cleanse us from our sins. He has to remove our sin in order to give us a relationship with him. Because as long as sin is there, it's blocking our connection with God. We can't have it. So he has to get that sin out of the way. He has to wash us clean in order for us to be able to have that relationship that he wants to have with us and to walk with him. He says, I'm going to cleanse you, and then I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. The Holy Spirit. So I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. He calls it here a heart of flesh. A heart that is tender and soft to the Lord. That will love Him and worship Him for who He really is. And somehow He says this new heart, this new spirit, this new worship, it's going to come through water. And then we see the fulfillment of that, once again, in the New Testament. John chapter 4, look at verse 13. It says, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So, again, this scene is important. Jesus here, he's talking to the woman at the well, right? And so naturally, because they're at a well, the conversation leads to water and drinking and thirst and all these things, right? So they're talking about this stuff, and the lady's like, are we, why are you talking to me? I'm just here to get the water. I'm just needing to fill the jug and get back home. And like, she does this every day, every day coming out in the heat of the day, filling the jug, going back, using the water, filling the jug. She's doing this over and over again, every day. And then Jesus says, hey, if you drink the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. And she's like, uh, yes, please. Right? Like, I, I mean, I don't have to come out here every day and fill this crazy jug of water. Yes, give me some of that. I'll take that water, please. Some right here. And then he goes on and he says, my water is an, in, an internal spring welling up to eternal life. To which she was probably like, I don't know what that means, but okay, sounds good. Like, let's just, whatever that is, I'll take some of that. You see, Jesus isn't offering her physical water. He's offering her spiritual water. Water for her soul. Water that could grant her not just physical life, but eternal spiritual life. He explains this water more a couple chapters later. Look at John chapter 7, verse 37 and 39. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, that Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, or springs, like he said to the woman at the well. He says, now, and then he says this, now this he said about the Spirit. The water, the river, the spring is the Spirit. I love when the Bible tells us what it means. <laughs> and we only have to guess. He's like, hey, it's the Spirit. Thanks, Jesus, appreciate that, right? He says, it's the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had, was not yet glorified. 
So Jesus tells us right here, like, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, will be this spring of eternal water, eternal life. And he said this about the Spirit. The water, the spring, the river, all of it, all of the eternal life, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And he says, those who believe will receive the living water. All believers, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit, and he is a spring of living water inside of you. He's preserving you. He's sustaining you. Just like our bodies need physical water to survive, right? Like if you don't drink water, you're gone pretty quick. We have to have it to survive. Just like you need physical water to survive on earth, you need spiritual water to survive spiritually. To get to the other side, to make it to eternal life, to have that eternity with God, it only comes through drinking of the water of living life, living spirit in us. You have to have it. This comes again in Revelation chapter 22. Verse 17, Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the church, say, come. Come. Come and receive the living water. Come and receive through faith the eternal spring. This is what you need. He invites us to drink so that we can be sustained in our soul until he comes to take us home. And this best part, he says, take of the water, take of the living water without price. He offers us this living water for free because Jesus already paid for it on the cross. He already gave us what we need to experience eternal life. All we have to do is come and believe and receive the living water. And we don't just need it once, friends. That's why he said it's a, a, a spring inside of us, a, an eternal spring. It's because we need to be drinking of the water every day. We need that living water every moment, every day, to help us walk with Christ and follow him and to live in the Spirit. As the water, the Spirit preserves and sustains me for eternal life with the Savior. He preserves me, preserves my faith, preserves my soul, preserves my walk with Christ, and He sustains me to keep going all the way to the end. Because I'm drinking of the living water. Five pictures. Five pictures of the Holy Spirit. All giving us a different aspect of who He is and how we need to be following Him and walking with Him and living with Him. And the more clearly I see the Spirit, the more closely I can walk with the Spirit. The more clearly I see Him, the more I understand. Do you see Him more clearly today? Now that we've walked through these pictures, do you see more clearly the person and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit? 
He offers us new life. He offers us purity and progress in our faith and power. He offers us eternal life for our souls. But first we have to receive him. We have to be filled with him day in and day out, filled with the Holy Spirit, cooperating with him, walking with him. We need need to live every moment in the Spirit. Full of new life, drinking of the spring of living water. Let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God. We praise you that you that you give us this awesome gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for filling us with new life, for filling us with your power and purifying us and saving our souls. God, we see him, we love him, we need him. More of the Holy Spirit. Every day, in every way, we need his work and his power in our lives to help us live for you, to live out this life that you've given us. So God, we're praying once again today, Lord, fill us. Fill us with your wind. Wash us in your water. Lord, give us a fresh dose today that we might live for you. We might drink of the living water. We pray all of this in Christ's name.